Hi, I'm Kevin Larimer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers. And I'm Melissa Falavino, the Associate Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers podcast. In this episode, we will preview the September-October MFA issue. We'll talk with Ken Waldman. Alaska's fiddlin' poet. That's right. Uh, we'll also talk to Joshua Bodwell and Anne Beattie in Maine. And we will uh, listen to a clip from Pernicia Jones at Poets and Writers Live in Chicago. So stick around. So, Melissa, how's your summer been? It's been all right. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's quickly going away. It's almost over. It is almost over. It's hot all the time. All the time. Smells like hot trash, <laughs> which is just, it's just a, one of those like magical things about New York City. Like always, the mm-hmm. hot trash. You know, I w- just yesterday I was walking um, to get some lunch um, down here in Lower Manhattan, mm-hmm. and. I walked over a subway grate, hmm. and that's that's one of those things about New York where it was actually refreshing. <laughs> I'm not going to say that the smell was necessarily refreshing, <laughs> but there is a, a slight change in temperature. Yeah, you get that cool blast from the... I mean, cool. It's, it's less hot. <laughs> that less hot blast. That's true. Yeah. That's really true. <laughs> Anyway, summer is almost over. Summer is almost over. You know what? It's almost back to school time. It is almost back to school time. And um, people are uh, starting to think about applying to MFA programs. They are. Those applications are going to start coming due. Yep. And um, that's why the September-October issue is the MFA issue. It's our ninth annual annual MFA issue. Mm -hmm. And it's huge. It's gigantic. It's uh, just chock full of, of, of goodness. Lots of stories about the MFA. Yes. Uh, the special section is called The Many Faces of Today's MFA. Um, it includes uh, some really great articles. Uh, one of them that I'm excited about is called The Way of the Workshop. Um, I asked eight writers uh, who also teach at MFA programs to write about their approach to workshop, talk a little bit about the culture of the classroom that they try to um, cultivate. cultivate and build. Yes. Um, and we have some great people writing for it. It's, um, you know, Major Jackson wrote something, uh, Linda Gregerson, uh, and six others, and uh, that's really exciting. We also have a piece called Degrees of Diversity, Talking Race in the MFA by Sonia Larson, who is the assistant director of Grub Street's uh, Muse in the Marketplace conference. She is studying fiction at Warren Wilson College, and Warren Wilson put on a really interesting panel discussion. It was called uh, Shadowboxing, a faculty panel on the intersections of culture and craft, uh, and it featured Lance Samantha Chang, David Haynes, A. Van Jordan, Monica Yoon, and C. Dale Young, and they talked a lot about diversity in MFA programs, or the lack thereof, uh, and some of the challenges for writers who are in programs where, you know, it might not be as racially and ethnically diverse as perhaps it could be, and they they talk about some really interesting stuff. So that's going to be online as well at pw.org, so you should definitely check it out. In this issue, we also have another installment of our Agents and Editors series. Um, And this time, Michael Zurban talks to Don Davis, who is the vice president and publisher of 37 Inc., which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster's Atria Publishing Group. 
Um, and Dawn uh, talks to Michael about a lot of things, including um, the lack of diversity in publishing, how she has dealt with that uh, in her career, and what some of the most successful authors that she's worked with have in common. Yeah, and one of those authors that she's worked with is Edward P. Jones, um, who uh, she worked with when she was at Amistad, uh, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. And uh, she edited uh, The Known World, uh, which was his, his really big novel um, that was published in 2003. Right. Uh, and we also have a profile with Dean Young, the poet Dean Young. So our contributing editor, Kevin Nance, flew down to Austin, Texas to talk to Dean. And Dean Young is the author of 13 books. Um, he also had a very major heart surgery in 2010. Yeah, he had a heart transplant. He had a heart transplant in 2010. And so his new book, Shock by Shock, which is being published by Copper Canyon Press, um, he talks a little bit about that, but a lot of the interview, um, he talks to Kevin Nance about um, how, despite this really traumatic experience, that's not really what he writes about. Right. Like it, it sort of uh, comes up in a number of the poems, but it doesn't, he doesn't dwell on that um, subject in the poems. Um, He, you know, his, his poetry um, is not, not very autobiographical, I would say. And um, he talks to uh, Kevin about, you know, his roots um, as a poet uh, and his interest in surrealism and as he calls it, the freedom of unreason. Right. I'm really excited about this issue's cover profile. Yes, Anne Beattie. Anne Beattie. Her 19th book, uh, The State We're In, Main Stories, uh, is published in August by Scribner. Anne is the author of a number of novels. Um, you know, her, her debut novel, Chilly Scenes of Winter, uh, was published simultaneously with her first story collection, Distortions, by Doubleday in 1976. Mm-hmm. And um, Joshua Bodwell, who is the executive director of the Maine Writers and Publishers Alliance, profiled Anne for us. Um, He's profiled a number of authors from New England uh, over the years. Um, John Casey, uh, Andre Debus III, and Richard Ford. And he also uh, wrote, back in 2008, uh, An Art of Reading, Andre Debus Sr., Uh, for us. And um, Joshua let me know that um, that's actually how he met Anne Beattie. He reached out to her while writing about Debuse. Uh, and then the first time they met in person was after that issue came out. That was the July-August 2008 issue. Uh, and uh, apparently Anne invited him to lunch to celebrate and talk about Andre. So, so that's pretty cool. I went up to Maine recently. It's the 40th anniversary of the Maine Writers and Publishers Alliance. So Joshua invited me up there to uh, a party at Richard Ford's house. And uh, there was a lot of uh, really great writers there. Uh, Richard Russo was there, and uh, Kate Christensen, and Roxana Robinson, and Anne. So I sat down with Joshua and Anne uh, in Richard Ford's guest house, uh, which was pretty cool. It's right next to his, uh, his writing shack uh, <laughs> right there on the water. Uh, and we talked about her new book, um, her writing process, uh, and uh, we, had a, we had a nice talk. So, Joshua, you uh, wrote the article, uh, the profile of Anne, uh, that's going to be in the new issue. And, um, Anne, do you want to just tell us a little bit about the new book? Sure. Uh, The new book is called The State We're In, and it's subtitled Maine Stories. And um, the stories do take place in Maine, but I don't really think it's a unifying principle of the book. Um, The stories are very slightly related, which was intentional on my part. I didn't want to write a series of related stories, and I didn't really want to 
say as much about Maine as I would say in an essay or as I would say to a friend or whatever. But I wrote the stories in a very quick period of time. I was in Maine when I wrote them. And you know, you sometimes just grab whatever is right outside the window. And then by extension, I grab some other things too. Um, since we're here, uh, I'm just thinking of this white tent up on the hill, which makes me think uh, of your humor and the way you use uh, a main setting and a tent in a story. Um, and maybe, maybe you could talk a little bit about the humor in your work. The humor always surprises me, but it, it is the thing that keeps writers going a lot of the time. In other words, you're almost joking to keep your own spirits up in some way when you're writing a story because you know there's so much ambient anxiety about what's going on. So in the same way, all of us, when we're saying something terribly serious, often take an aerial perspective of ourselves and kind of clear our throats and think, well, that was a bit much, or or you know, do intersperse a joke with something that we're saying. Not to not because it's a crowd pleaser, but just because we're human beings and just because we're working in one vein doesn't mean that we're forgetting all those other things that are out there. Well, um, in the piece, Lauren, Lauren Stein gives you that great compliment about your humor reinvigorating the short story. Is that what Lauren said? Yeah, it's a wonderful line. Oh, you don't know that yet. No. Now you do. Uh -huh. <laughs> I didn't know now that. You do. <laughs> How very nice of Lauren. <laughs> thanks, Lauren. Here's a big thanks to you. <laughs> so um, I think I told you when I was reading, um, reading the galleys, um, I think I've been preparing to write this profile of you, you know, accidentally for my whole life in a way <laughs> since I've been reading you since I was a teenager. Um, but in particular, when I was reading this book, I mentioned to you, I, I threw it down several times, sort of, damn you for being so good. Uh, and I think that pleased you. You said that uh, Very a book much. thrown down, what Are a book thrown down. What did you say? I'm not going to paraphrase you. I don't know exactly what I said, but I take it as a high compliment. Okay. I really do, you know. So what do you hope? I was complimenting when I told you I threw the book down. Probably that something was so specific in the moment that it really clicked, but you know, it wasn't a, I mean, if it were me, I guess what I would be talking about is that it was a very inventive way to say something, but something that really struck a chord with me personally, you know? Mm. I mean, I hope people throw it down for all kinds of reasons. <laughs> they should buy it first, but then okay. they can throw it down. But I certainly understand You should not throw down someone else's book. <laughs> no, you, not buy necessarily. Your own copy. <laughs> no, yeah, it was very specifically that way where, um, it stops and make me think, how the hell does, does Anne know that? Mm -hmm. How does she know that perfect moment, specifically with some of the Jocelyn stories? Oh. Um, that not only are you writing wonderful sentences and saying funny things, but your understanding of humans and the interactions. That was... That was frustrating to me. Well, one of the interesting things about writing always, not just with these stories, but I, I always rediscover this every time I'm, I'm writing something again, is that you know you do think you have a fix on things. And if you were to have a conversation with somebody, you probably would say things that you wouldn't be terribly surprised to hear yourself saying. I mean, you might impulsively have an epiphany or something like that. But generally speaking, you're, you're yourself as you are in your own head. When you're writing, you're projecting a persona. You mm -hmm. just are. And it may be very close to you, but nevertheless, you have that freedom of that other unguarded factor. Whereas it's not that I want to be guarded in my conversation per se. It's just that I'm habituated to my mm. conversation, but I'm not habituated to my character's conversation right, or right. even to the kind of narrative I could apply to them. Right, right. So that always makes me think, oh, great, I've got a lot of leeway here. Yeah, a lot of freedom. A lot of freedom. I note in the piece, too, that your next collection is already turned in, mm -hmm. and in fact had been turned in before you wrote these in a rush. Right. Um, talk a bunch in the piece about how quickly these stories came last summer Yeah. in, in one 
well, three week rush and then the first drafts yep. at least. <laughs> um, could you talk a little bit about your writing process and that speed and, 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 you know, has it always been that way or have you sort of worked yourself into that way of working? Usually when I'm writing short stories, even if they're short, four pages, five, six pages in manuscript or something like that, I mean, for, for me, that's certainly extremely short. Maybe not Lydia Davis short in some of her stories, <laughs> but I mean, you know, you sort of realize what length story you're likely likely to be writing. And uh, I, I did have, in, in, in all fairness, even though I really was on a roll, I had two stories, neither of which I'd sent to my agent, and both of which involved Maine to varying extents. But I'd written those only about a month before all the stories that are collected in this volume, and I juggled those in. Mm. But they were really essentially from pretty much the same time period. I wrote 18 stories of varying lengths, none of them terribly long, um, and I threw out three of them totally. And so there are 15 stories in the book, but 13 of those 15 were written in rough draft in a six-week period when my husband was off on vacation with his brother. So, you know, goodbye, boys. Bon voyage. <laughs> so Lincoln needs to go away more, you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Lincoln feels very guilty. <laughs> um, the other thing we talk about a little bit in the piece is that um, 2016 will be a 40th anniversary for you. It since is? You're, well, 1976. I never thought of it. Was when your first two books were published. Do you think the Fords will throw a big party for me? <laughs> I think we absolutely should. There should be lobsters. Hint, hint. <laughs> So I couldn't help but think, huh. you know, I, I was reflecting on 1976 as yeah. I was writing the piece. Um, what challenges did, did you have breaking in, you know, in 1976 and how those have changed to today? You know, is there anything that you can offer today's writer that you think you had that's changed since 76? Well, that's a really hard question to answer in a general way, but let me just say a couple of things that I do believe. Number one, personally speaking, at the point at which I was writing those stories, there were not many writing programs. I had not attended a writing program. I'm not saying you need to attend a writing program. I'm just saying that the what was in the air was so very different then. So in some ways, any notion of this is a a profession or a career or anything you want to call it was not really foremost in my mind. I don't sit down now writing because I think this is my career, but I don't you know, say that that isn't true either. I mean, it's certainly not a motivating factor. It's always in the back of my mind. I always want to do something better for my own sake, not even for the sake of my disembodied so-called career, you know. So that, that, let's take that as a constant. I would say the bigger thing that has changed is that number one, on the surface, people are so much more open to short stories, and that really is because of MFA programs in large part. So many more of them are being written that whether they like it or not, the publishers often have to cave and put those stories out. The only reason I got stories published in 1976 is that they paid me so very little, so very little, and they were a tag along with my first novel, Chilly Scenes of Winter. So they would not have given me a two book contract or a one book contract even, I, d I truly do not believe, even wow. for distortions. Perhaps six years down the line they would have, but at the time that I did that, 
that was the circumstance under which it happened. I don't think things are so closed down now as a possibility, and that's a really, really good thing. And as we all know, in, in the intervening time, there have been numerous Jhumpa Lahiri's uh, interpreter maladies. I mean, won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, Thomas Pierce, uh, Hall of Small Mammals, is a first book, and it's just out six months ago. It's gotten terrific and well-deserved acclaim. You know, there it, it's not as impossible to get a book out now. To find individual places to publish your stories is far harder, unless we're talking about the web, and mm -hmm. I don't know enough about that to say anything helpful to anyone. Uh, I mean, Narrative Magazine is great, and mm -hmm. I publish in Narrative. I know a few little things, but I don't pretend to know that field. But I would say that while the publishers have sort of been made to open their arms in some ways, they wouldn't be happy if you kept doing this song and dance, unless you won the Pulitzer. That would help you greatly. Okay. Uh, and thank you very much. It is a real uh, pleasure to uh, feature you in the magazine, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Melissa, you're in a band. Do you play the fiddle? I don't. I don't <laughs> play the fiddle. Um, I did. I did play. I learned to play the violin when I was, uh, you know, in fifth and sixth grade. Mm -hmm. But it unfortunately, did not stick. Um, I picked up the trumpet and then the guitar. And then it instead. was all over. It was all done. But I've often um, regretted that I put down the fiddle because um, it's a very versatile instrument. You can mm -hmm. play, you know, classical music. You can also play some really foot stomping bluegrass, mm -hmm. which I, you know, enjoy. You know who plays a mean fiddle? Who? Ken Walbin. Mm. Alaska's fiddling poet. That's right, Alaska's fiddling poet. Uh, so Ken Waldman uh, wrote an article for this issue. It's called "The Poet's Job: How I Make a Living in Poetry." And Ken, for the last twenty years, uh, has been making a living traveling around, reading his poems and playing his fiddle for, you know, a variety of different audiences. Um, first graders, fourth graders, middle schoolers, um, high school students, adults. Um, he's appeared at some of the country's leading festivals, concerts, series, music clubs, and universities. Mm -hmm. And he also, you know, he's the author of six poetry collections, mm -hmm. um, a memoir. Mm -hmm. um, a bunch of CDs. And like nine CDs, mm -hmm. uh, which feature, you know, a combination of uh, Appalachian style, uh, string band music, um, original poetry, uh, and uh, storytelling set in Alaska, which is where he's from. Um, my kids have a couple of his CDs for, for children, uh, and uh, they sort of rock out to those <laughs> once in a while. And uh, so we had him in the uh, Ampersand studio here. And we talked to him a bit about um, his life as a traveling poet and musician, um, how he makes that work, and some of the experiences he's had on the road. Ken Waldman, welcome to Ampersand. 
glad to be here. Yeah. Glad to be here in your offices. <laughs> <laughs> so you're doing some uh, some gigs here in New York City. I was just in Brooklyn last night at in Red Hook, actually with an event sponsored by co-sponsored by Poets and Writers, and then. Uh, Tomorrow I'm going to be at the Long Island Children's Museum and Wednesday at the Museum of the City of New York. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the day after that I'm going to be traveling upstate to uh, Amsterdam, New York, and Montgomery County. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I think a lot of the poets who read the magazine are, you know, do, do events and they give readings and, and probably not a lot of them play the fiddle. But, yeah. but they're familiar with, you know, doing events and things like this. But not to the extent where they're, you know, I mean, you've, you've really made, you make a living doing this. I and imagine a lot of the, a lot of the work is um, establishing the contacts and, and, you know, uh, keeping those relationships up. And how do you, I mean, do you have any advice for people who are? are well, okay, well, here's, here's advice. Everybody has a community where there's something going on. And if there isn't going on, then you have the opportunity to start something going on. You start a community in your town, in your you know, your county in your, your area. I mean, you know, New York is so big, but what is it? You know, you end up going to KGB or you can end up doing things in Brooklyn or there's, there's infinite uh, places you can go and meet people. But the more you're out in public, it just kind of snowballs. So, you know, if you, if you don't go to AWP because it's too big, it's not for me. Well, figure out a way to go to AWP to make it shrink it a little bit, sit at a booth the whole time uh, or at a table at the book fair so you can be centered and you're still going to be meeting a lot of people mm-hmm. and you don't have to do it in such a crazy way. The thing is, the more you reach out to more people, the less you feel desperate for any one job or any one publication. The more you keep sending material out, mm-hmm. uh, the better. It's, it's like if you feel like it's, it's the New Yorker, Paris Review or nothing, yeah. you're going to have a tough road. <laughs> but if you just go, oh, I'll... You know, I or you end up reading a journal, or you meet somebody, and you see where they've been published. Then you just see that it's uh, it's endless. Mm-hmm. And of course, the most important part is getting the work done, doing the writing. I sometimes do these workshops called "So You Want to Go Places with Your Art," and the idea of being more public. You know, if you're in an MFA program, you're a writer. If you have books out, you're a writer. But then, it's not the talent. It's like, how are you going to make a living out of this? It's beyond talent, and there's Lots of ways for a musician to make a living. If you want to be in an orchestra, well, good luck, you know, because it's, right. there's only so many positions. There's academia. If you want to get a job in an MFA program as a professor, well, good luck. There's going to be so many openings. And, you know, if the, if the numbers come up for you, if you're, the dice come your way, great. <laughs> but there are other jobs out there. I found my path, but there's other paths that can work really well. And that's one thing that I would say for everybody, that you find what works for you with that. And uh, that it's wonderful teaching, you know, adjuncting and teaching that. But you can also be on that cycle where it's like, especially the folks who are having to drive like 60 miles here and 40 miles there. You don't have your own desk hardly anywhere. And you're just getting by. Well, yeah, I would have a hard time going back to that, which I've been advised. Oh, you can adjunct. I go, well, in the course of a week, I can teach somewhere, and it's my own curriculum, and I'm making that money in a week. And then I can get, you know, do it again the next week or do it the next month and and get by. Right. I love that this article is appearing in the September October issue because it's the MFA issue. Oh God! And this is a nice uh, alternative to Mm -hmm. uh, to that. You know the 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 grind of the 
the adjuncting and and um, yeah, it's it's. I mean, I went to an MFA program, and mm-hmm. and I, God, I believe in MFA programs hugely, and uh, but they're not for everybody. Right. You've been doing this for twenty years, and I've gotten old. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking at your upcoming schedule, and I mean, you're going to be in Alaska, then you're going to be in Canada, Rhode Island, Kansas, Missouri, North Carolina, D.C., you know, Michigan, Kentucky. A practical question here, but how are you getting? Do you? It's like playing chess. It's like <laughs> waiting tables. You have to think a bunch of moves. It's like writing a novel. You sure. know, you're, it's like anything else. If you if you write well. You, you put the same energy into that or you play music well, you write well. So you should put that same energy into, I don't want to say marketing yourself, but doing your professional life. If there's a certain amount of money involved, I will get somewhere for like $2,500 up. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's like, to compared to some people, that's small. But who are we kidding? That's decent money. Yeah. You know, we're talking about adjuncting and yeah. doing that. But I also am persistent. I show up everywhere. So people see me and they go, what is it you do? Then they either read or see the CDs or read the things. Oh, it's good. Because we look at how much stuff is out there. How do you get to see it all? Right, right. Okay. But I'm going to be, I, I, I carry stuff in my car and I carry books and CDs to sell, instruments, clothes, and uh, I have it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I've kind of, and I don't even have a big car. I used to have a, a van that I filled completely and I'd sometimes. You know, and that's in the memoir one of those days where the I would sometimes feels, sleep in it. I, I kind of wanted <laughs> you to have a VW van, bus, yeah. you know. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, right now I have a <laughs> Nissan Sentra that's a hand-me-down from my mother. That, <laughs> that works, uh, too. And information about all of your books and your CDs are uh, on is, uh And then there's, uh, you could spend some time on there, and there's even more stuff. You can see poems with dancers on my website. That's great. That's great. Well, let's hear some fiddle. Something fast, something slow, poem. What's your pleasure? What's my bliss say? Clark, and uh, it's one I play to make myself feel at home wherever I go. I'll do a poem with it uh, called Old Time Fiddle Lesson. To learn, lock yourself and your fiddle in a room all winter and practice till you play with a twisty, heartfelt, rhythmic punch that approaches trance. Now, fiddling's not technical repetition anyone can master. It's the sound you make once you know in the blood you clog with your fingers while that old devil music dances inside the box. I'll play that tune one more time. Portland. We are going to Portland. Poets for Matters Live is headed to the Pacific Northwest. 
Uh, we're going to have an event on October 17th at the Pacific Northwest College of Art in Portland. Uh, and we have a really exciting program lined up. Um, the theme is independent publishing. And we are still, you know, putting all of the, the details together. Um, but already we have uh, some really exciting editors and authors who have committed to the program. Uh, Michael Wiegers, the executive editor of Copper Canyon Press. Uh, Kevin Samsell of Future Tense Books. Rhonda Hughes of Hawthorne Books. Um, and we also have editors from Wave Books, Octopus Books, Tin House. Um, our contributing editor, Deborah Gwartney, is going to be there, which is very exciting, um, as well as Barry Lopez. It's going to be great. It's going to be a good time. Yep. This is going to be our sixth Poets and Writers Live event. That's right. Uh, our last one was in Chicago in June. That was the agents and editors themed event. Uh, it was a great time. We had lots of writers, agents, editors giving readings uh, and panels talking about publishing. Um, we also had three really excellent performances by live lit writers and performers, um, including Parnesia Jones. Mm -hmm. And Parnesia Jones uh, is the poetry editor at Northwestern University Press, and her debut poetry collection, Vessel, uh, was published uh, earlier this year by Milkweed Editions. Right, and she read three poems from that book as part of the page on stage performance from that event in Chicago, and we are going to hear one of them now. Bra shopping. Yeah, I'm going to put that one on, you guys. <laughs> Saturday afternoon, Marshall Fields, second floor, women's lingerie department, 16. I am a jeans and t-shirt wearing tomboy who could think of a few million more places to be instead of in the department store with my mother, bra shopping. Growing accustomed to these two new welts lashed onto me by puberty, we enter into no man's, and I mean no man in sight, land. A frilly lace, nightgowns, grandma panties, and support everything. Mama directs us to a wall covered with hundreds of white bras, some with lace and little frills, others with ribbons like party favors as if bras are a cause for celebration. A few have these dainty, ditzy bows in the middle. That's a nice accent, don't you think? Mama would say. Isn't that cute? Like this stupid miniature bow in the middle will distract attention from my two looming, blooming issues. When Mama and I go brassiere shopping, it never fails. A short woman with glasses attached to a chain around her neck who cares way too much about bras. May I help you, dearies? The bra woman begins to assist my mother in finding me the perfect bra to, as my mother puts it, hold me in the proper way. No bouncing, please. Working as a team, they plot to ruin my entire day with the bra-fitting marathon. They conspire handfuls of white and mauve-colored bras. Who's making all these bras, I want to yell. <laughs> what size is she, the nosy bra woman asks. You want something that will support them, honey. The bra woman winks while my mother inspects. Oh, she's a good size. She's way out of that training bra phrase. I want her to have something that will hold them up proper. Them? 
them. Them, she says. Like they're two midgets I keep strapped to my chest. I stand there while these two women, one my own kin, discuss the maintenance and storage of my two dependents. <laughs> the worst is yet to come. The dressing room. I hate the dressing room. Mirrors ready to laugh at me. Women half-naked, strapped, bulged, girdled into unbelievable, torturous contraptions. Things showing I hope to never see on my own body. I stand there, half naked and pissed, wasting away in a sea of bras, feeling like in a rag doll under interrogation, with my mama on one side, the bra woman on the other. They begin fixing straps, poking me, raising me up, snapping the back, underwire digging my breasts a grave. The bras clamp down, shaping my breasts into pristine bullets. There's no movement, no pulse, no life. Just still in their uniformed perky salutes, real proper, like my mother wanted. Why couldn't I have been born a boy? I will never forgive my mother for this. Blank face, my reflecting pout only produces lectures from my mother about proper woman upkeep. After we are halfway through the bra inventory, my mother takes mercy on me, gathers a select few of hand wash only neutral booby traps. <laughs> and we make our way to the checkout counter. I don't get happy too quick because I know that bra woman continues to lurk. And if she senses my excitement that this torture is over, she will come with more white bras. The bras are wrapped in pink paper mache, placed by the bra lady carefully into a shiny green Marshall Fields bag. She hands it over to me as if she's knighting me. And my mother oversees, satisfied. We walk out of underwire, underworld. Mom turns to me. See, that wasn't so bad. Pranisha was amazing. She was amazing. Uh, and we have a lot more lined up for the event on October 17th in Portland. Uh, so consider joining us, and uh, you can find information and details at pw.org live. So that's it. Ampersand episode three. Join us uh, next episode for a preview of the November-December independent publishing issue. We're going to have a focus on translation, which I'm really excited about. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, summer's almost gone. Summer is almost gone. The fall and then the winter is upon us. I can't believe we're already talking about winter. But as Albert Camus said, in the depths of winter, I realized there was within me an invincible summer. Hmm. An invincible summer. That's nice. An invincible summer. We can keep those words 
They'll keep us warm. Yep. Invincible summer minus the hot trash smell. Right. You know, uh, the subway grates. Mm-hmm. The same goes in the winter. If you walk over oh, the yeah, winter, they're, they're warm. If you walk over the grates in the winter, you get an equally nasty smelling breeze, <laughs> but upward a breeze. breeze. But it's a nice warm. It's like a. It's like a warm hug. It's like a on, hu- a, it's on a, a cold winter day. A hug that only New York City can give you. <laughs> That's right. Just a hot, kind of smelly hug, but a hug nonetheless. <laughs> it's sort of the invincible summer during the winter here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The subway generates an invincible summer. Right. With apologies to Camus. <laughs> um, what are you going to do with the rest of your summer? Um, I'm heading on a road trip uh, out west to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh-huh. Never been there before. Um, I'm going to be officiating my friend's wedding. She's a poet. Um, and, wow. Uh, are you ordained? I Not yet. I need to get ordained <laughs> really quickly um, in the state of New Mexico. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm in a camp. Are you, are you going to bring your guitar? I am actually. I have to play music for the wedding as well. So, um, are you going? Are you going to like do the officiating with your guitar? You know, I hadn't planned on that, but that's a fantastic idea. <laughs> so maybe I will do that, a la Ken Waldman, only with my guitar instead of a fiddle. It's uh, like it's like a it's like an episode of Tenacious D. Yeah, it'll or, be more or like Flight that. Of the Concords. Yeah, probably. Yeah, excellent. It's pretty awkward. And uh, what are you doing? Well, I will be. Um, at the Library of Congress National Book Festival, uh, Labor Day weekend. Awesome. I'm going to be moderating a panel um, about publishing in the digital age, uh, and I'll be joined by Lynn Freed and Jeffrey Klosky of Riverhead Books. So uh, if you're in the nation's capital for Labor Day, uh, come find me. Sounds good. All right. All right. See you next time. On Ampersand. The Poets Writers Podcast. Ampersand is a production of Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited by Melissa Falavino, with production assistance from Jonathan Walsh. Music for this episode was provided by Poddington Bear, Boss Bass, and Nick Jaina. To subscribe to Ampersand and to check out photos, ephemera, and more, visit pw.org forward slash ampersand. Ampersand.